When I was a kid, I put Mr. Yuck stickers on all the chemicals under the kitchen sink. The carton of milk often had a photo of a missing child on it. McGruff, the crime dog, warned me not to talk to strangers. And I had, with my friends, ridden my bike to the Tom Thumb, which was a mile and a half from my house. I had grown up in northern suburban Minneapolis. The area was thought of as relatively safe. The farmland surrounding my suburb was a place where nothing ever happened. St. Cloud was about 45 minutes from my house, unless my parents were driving, and then it took a good hour. St. Cloud was supposed to be a city, but everyone I knew thought it was a bit Hickville. No offense meant St. Cloud. It was surrounded by farmland and towns like St. Joseph, nine miles away. In October 1989, a man in a homemade mask stepped out from a copse of trees and pointed a gun at three boys. Two of those boys would be told to run and not to look back. The third boy would vanish into the night along with that man. You are listening to It's All Relative, a podcast about crime and the family. It is not rainbows and unicorns, people. Listener, beware. I am your host, Kaylee, and I will return after some Huey Lewis in the news. The end of October in 1989 was perfect weather for outdoorsmen. Teacher in-service on Monday the 23rd meant that kids got an extra day to their weekend. The morning of Sunday the 22nd, Jerry Wetterling and his son Jacob went fishing. They made sure they were home in time for the kickoff that noon. It's American football for those of you anywhere else in the world. After the game, Jacob, age 11, asked his friend Aaron, also 11, to come stay the night. Jerry and his wife Patty went to a party about 20 minutes away from home, which I find weird. Who, in 1989, has a party on a Sunday night, especially in rural mid-America? But that's neither here nor there. Jacob is left in charge of his younger brother Trevor, age 10, and sister, age 8. The boys decide they want to rent a movie. Movies, my listeners, did not always come by magic into your smart TV. Before TiVo, before DVDs, there were VHS tapes. You want a movie? You have to have a VCR to play the video, and you have to have a physical VHS cassette. You could purchase the video, but if you're not going to watch it more than once or twice, it was much cheaper to rent. The larger rental chains like Blockbuster and Hollywood could not generate the capital needed to have a store in a town like St. Joseph. But many service stations and mini-marts would also offer video rental as a value-added opportunity for their customers. Make extra for the store, and locals could still see the latest movie. The Tom Thumb was a mini-mart chain like 7-Eleven, and there was one about a mile from the Wetterling's home. 
It's dark outside, but the boys figured they can make it there and back just fine on their bikes with reflective gear and a flashlight. They talk to their mother, Patty, and she says no. But then they talk to their father, and after hearing their plan, he says yes. The boys call their 14-year-old neighbor to watch their little sister, and they head off on their bikes. The Wetterlings lived on the outskirts of St. Joseph. Today, Google Maps shows a heavily homed area just north of the Wetterling Street and stemming from St. Joseph's Center. It's like the Burbs. The cookie-cutter houses stop just before they reach the Wetterling Street, and the few acres surrounding the Wetterling home are relatively unchanged. In 1989, however, the sea of suburban homes didn't exist. This is not to say there weren't any homes, but the built land stopped much closer to the center of town. There were thousands of towns like St. Joe in America's heartland in the 1980s. Main Street is something like five blocks long, there's a corner with two competing bars, there's a Dairy Queen that makes burgers and fries, and if it's a big enough town, there is a Hardee's. If it's really booming, there's a McDonald's. The town itself is like a mile square, and the pavement stops abruptly wherever that mile ends. Past this, there will be homes, but at this point, for another mile or so, there are dirt roads, long driveways, and no streetlights. Past that is farmland. When I was a kid, someone staying at my house watched Children of the Corn, and I tried to avoid watching the movie, but it wasn't that big of a house. I was freaked out by cornfields until I was like 16. The Wetterlings lived in that zone past the paved roads of town, but not yet fully farmland. Like I said, the Tom Thumb was only a short bike ride away, and in letting the boys bike to the store, what the Wetterling parents were mostly worried about had to do with the lack of light. No streetlights meant that, one, the boys may have a hard time seeing the road and could get hurt, and two, people that live in that kind of rural area do not drive 35 miles an hour. Darkness, gravel, and road signs be damned. The Wetterlings were concerned that the boys would be hit by a car in the dark, but the boys thought of everything to assuage these concerns. Reflective gear, flashlight, and they added a babysitter for a little sis. In 1989, being out in the dark when you lived in the rural Midwest was normal. Other than my phobia of cornfields, there was no reason to fear the dark. Watch out for ruts where you can twist your ankle and never play in the barn. It's all good. There was no reason for Jerry and Patty to say no. The boys left home about 8.30. There was a hill at about the halfway point, and just as they reached the top of the hill, they heard something. They kept going, parked their bikes outside the store, and picked out a movie. They were on their way back home about 9 p.m. I don't know if this happened or not, but I know when I was a kid, on a bike, especially with friends, and there was a hill, you would start going faster as you neared the hill to work up the inertia to help you on the way up. Sometimes you would race, and when you got to the top, you'd stop pedaling, probably even take your feet off the pedals, and coast down the hill, seeing how far you could get before you had to start pedaling again. As the boys got over the top of that hill and started down, a man came out of the dark proclaiming, Stop! I have a gun. Both Trevor and Aaron thought this was some kind of a joke, that it was a high schooler messing around with the younger kids. I personally do not see this as funny, but I do see this as something a high school boy might especially considering it was just over a week until Halloween. So I can understand why the boys thought it was a prank. Because what man would really jump out at a bunch of kids with a gun in the middle of rural America? That's 1989 thinking, peeps. It's important to understand the context. This man told them to put their bikes in the ditch and turn off the flashlight. 
The boys, thinking they were being robbed, tried to give the man their movie, but he slapped it out of their hands. They put their bikes in the ditch, leaving the candy they'd bought strewn around them in the grass. He made them lie on the grass on their stomachs, and he asked them their ages. When Trevor said he was ten, the man told him to run to the nearby copse of trees and not to look back. If Trevor didn't do as he was told, the man would shoot him. Trevor ran. First Aaron, then Jacob, said he was eleven. The man put his hands on Aaron's genitals over his clothes and felt around. He told Aaron the same thing as Trevor, and Aaron ran. Aaron took a risk, but looking back, he saw nothing. There was no man, there was no Jacob. Aaron caught up to Trevor quickly, and they both kept running all the way to the wetterlings. I again don't know if this happened, but I imagine them bursting through the door and almost falling at the neighbor girl's feet, maybe into her arms. The run would have tired them, but the experience would have made them exhausted. The babysitter called her father to come over immediately. Merle Jerzak came in a hurry. He heard the story from the boys and knew from the look on their faces that they were telling the truth. He called 911. The first deputy arrived at 9.40 p.m., an officer Bechtold. Merle also called the party that Jerry and Patty were at. He spoke with Jerry. The 180 spin that Jerry must have had. Going from a jovial party to the sucking mud pit of emotion that one of your children is missing. Patty was originally confused when Jerry told her they needed to get back home. I would bet a whole lot that Patty wishes she could go back to those three seconds of confusion. They didn't say goodbye to their hosts. They just left. One thing you can count on in 1989 random Farmville, Minnesota, is that it's always a slow news day. Being a sheriff of a place like this means that you probably won't miss your favorite sports team play, and you can probably enjoy your beer without the worry of having it go warm or you're being intoxicated when a crime is called in. But not October 22nd. Sheriff Graft lived three miles outside of St. Joe and was finishing a TV show when lights and sirens screamed by his house. Now, on the one hand, I find it a bit odd that no one told the sheriff about the kidnapping. He is the sheriff, after all. On the other hand, everyone in law enforcement who heard the call probably thought it was a misunderstanding or a prank. Therefore, no reason to interrupt the sheriff's night. That's what Sheriff Graft himself thought had happened when he left his house that night. He called dispatch to see what was going on. Even if it were a prank, Graft probably figured that whatever was going on was still better than trying to stay interested in the television. When he stepped in the Wetterling's house and saw Trevor and Aaron, he knew whatever had happened, it wasn't a prank and he knew they would need help. By 10 p.m., the director of the FBI's Minnesota Violent Crime Unit was getting ready to drive out to St. Joe in the morning, if Jacob had not been found. He reached St. Joe the next morning at 9. By that point, command center had been set up in a local catering venue. An air search begun the night before, and Sheriff Graft had been on that helicopter. They had to call off the search about 3 a.m. after they had a close call with some electrical wires. Monday morning, they continued to search, ultimately covering 25 square miles on foot and ATV. Jerry and Patty were interviewed on Monday as suspects. This had to have sucked. If it were me, I would have hated it, but also known the statistics and would have cooperated as much as possible so law enforcement could get on with finding the real bad guy. I have listened to Jerry and Patty recount this time. They were relatively naive to how this kind of investigation works. It makes sense, really. Of course they were naive. 
but they still somehow knew that cooperating was the fastest way to get everyone back on finding Jacob and his abductor. Additionally, law enforcement looked into possible revenge or sending a message type of crime. Jerry was the president of the local NAACP, and there could possibly be someone lashing out at Jerry by using Jacob. But nothing ever came of this line of thought. What did fulminate was the sum of all the fears propagated by after-school specials and the stranger danger era. The investigation narrowed to what now must seem inevitable. Jacob was taken by a pedophile. Over a hundred investigators were tasked some tasking themselves with finding Jacob. The FBI, BCA, Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, and Stearns County Law Enforcement were involved. Volunteers helped comb the terrain. It became one of the biggest missing person hunts in the history of the United States. From Robert Dudley's book, Finding Jacob Wetterling, quote, Reporter Daryl Savage was frustrated with the change in assignment. In recent weeks, he had twice been suddenly pried away from stories he was working on to cover breaking news. Children went missing all the time. The vast majority turned out to be domestic-related and brief in duration. Station policy, much like standard police policy, was to not report on such cases until 24 hours had passed. Why was there such a fuss over this one child, he asked himself. What was the big deal? End quote. Savage is not saying that Jacob wasn't worth his airtime, but from the beginning, Jacob's kidnapping was different, and the search for Jacob became a catalyst that changed things in law and policing, particularly concerning children and sex crimes. Sheriff Graft was confident that they would find Jacob quickly. After all, they couldn't have gotten far in that short time they had to get away. Put a pin in that. The case went national quickly. This was, in part, due to the enormous hunt which attracted national news media. The natural attraction of the media for a story was spurred by a friend of the Wetterlings, Vern Iverson, who persistently contacted radio stations, news outlets, billboard owners. He had health problems which caused him to leave the effort about six months after he started. But he's still a spitfire today. You can find him advocating for electronic vehicles and cleaner air and water. The local McDonald's donated 25 cents from every fry sale to support the effort. The Lions Club from a neighboring town offered $100,000 for information. And on November 4th, a human chain of about 5,000 people stretching almost four miles took up Stearns County Road. Two Minnesota Twins, baseball for you non-Americans, and the Twins manager were in attendance. The party that the Wetterlings had been at the night Jacob was taken had been a celebration for the recently completed and successful art festival for which Patty Wetterling was the chair, the Millstream Art Festival. This event still happens today, by the way. Patty knew how to plan an event, and finding Jacob was most certainly an event. The Wetterlings went about spearheading a flyer campaign, and they did something most parents wouldn't do, and many police forces would frown upon. The Wetterling home phone number became the number for tips to come in. Most people would probably say that they can't imagine. Me? It's the kind of thing I would do and then end up with PTSD later. American Public Media has a podcast on the Wetterling case. It is the first season of In the Dark. One of the things you hear on this podcast are some of these calls the Wetterlings took on their home phone. Hello? Hello, who is this? Have you got our letters? 
Oh, you have to tell me more. I get thousands of letters. Yes, I know. I want to ask you a question right quick. Okay. Is there anybody in your family, either side, with their legs off? Not that I know of. I see. One of the men that got your son don't have no legs. And that clip was taken directly off of the APM in the Dark website. The Wetterlings had been somewhat naive in terms of the safety of children in America. This changed very quickly. Days after Jacob was taken, the Jacob Wetterling Fund was created to generate funds to help in the search. A little over one year after Jacob went missing, the Wetterlings announced they would be forming the Jacob Wetterling Foundation. From Dudley's Finding Jacob, quote, The new organization expanded its focus to all missing children and to the prevention of child abduction and abuse by establishing three principal objectives. The first was to educate children and parents to prevent child abductions. Second was to assist law enforcement and families in the development of procedures to implement when the threat of abduction becomes reality. Third was to engage with the political arena in the development of legislation designed to protect children from predators. End quote. The Foundation and the Wetterlings became critical in establishing the 1994 Jacob Wetterling Act. This act required states to keep a sex offender registry and a registry of crimes against children. And before you go letting off a proverbial hooray, you might want to listen to episode 6 of In the Dark, season 1, for just a preliminary of why this has not been as awesome as Patty had hoped it would be. The Wetterlings, especially Patty, were not ones to let the grass grow under their feet. Patty Wetterling actually ran for Congress in the mid-aughts, losing to the Republican candidate both times. She currently acts as chair of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and is on the board for the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Back in 1990, law enforcement were still looking for Jacob. The spot where the boys had been molested was on the gravel road that stretched between the Wetterling Street and the town of St. Joseph. The exact location was at the end of a long driveway which led to the Rassier farm. The investigators found some tire tracks on this drive. They had followed what they believed to be Jacob's last footprints up this drive, and where the footprints stopped, there were these tire tracks. Now, how did they know that these were Jacob's shoe prints? Well, they were consistent with the Nikes that Jacob had been wearing, and the tracker dogs couldn't find Jacob's scent past that point, so they have a decent leg to stand on here. One thing I would point out, though, is that cars tend to drive from point A to point B. They don't suddenly shoot up in the air or just stop making contact with the ground. Additionally, a driveway is only so wide, especially dirt drives, and looking at this drive in the investigation photos, it seems normal width for a dirt drive, which is about the width of one car. My point is that any car going up and down this drive would leave its tracks in the same relative place as any other car. Having Jacob's footprints on the drive is actually more probative than any tire tracks. In fact, at the time, the BCA classified these tire tracks as possible evidence, not evidence that they were confident about. Good on you, BCA. The Sheriff's Department, on the other hand, you need another pin there. Now, the driveway belonged, still does, I believe, to the Rassier family. The pensioner Rassiers were on vacation when the kidnapping occurred, but their 34-year-old son, Dan, was home that night. Dan Rassier is a bit weird. And to be clear, most weird people are cool. It would be so boring if no one was weird. Also, Dan himself calls himself weird. So don't get your undies in a bunch about that word. Anyone who lives in the country knows that you are very aware when a car comes down your drive. 
Rastier saw two cars that night come down his driveway. One was a little blue car. Later that night, he was awoken by a dog barking at something outside. He sees a lot of flashlights at the back of his property and decides to call 911. The operator tells him that a child was abducted. Rassier immediately goes out to help in the search. Once he searched his property, he returned to his home. On Monday, investigators arrive at Rassier's work so they could interview him and search his car. Rassier was a music teacher, and during the 45 minutes he was with investigators, he told them about the cars he saw. The task force is running down leads. One of these leads involves reports from the nearby towns of Painesville and Cold Spring. Painesville is a town about 35 miles west of St. Joseph, beginning in 1986. A man has been trying to get boys into his car. The boys that are taken are molested and then released. From Finding Jacob, quote, By May 1987, there had been a series of five reports involving boys ranging in age from 12 to 16, with a no prime suspect identified. Another assault occurred in mid-May. Sergeant Bill Drager told the Painesville Press that police needed all the help they could get from the public. After this guy grabs the boys, he tells them, don't turn around or I'll blow your head off, he said. In at least one instance, he used a knife. End quote. The attacks in Painesville continued through 1988. Cold Spring is only eight miles from St. Joe and on the same highway that leads to Painesville. In January 1989, a boy named Jared is kidnapped and molested, again from finding Jacob. Jared was walking home alone from downtown Cold Spring at about 9.45 p.m. on a Friday night, when a man in a car approached him and asked for directions to a local residence. As Jared started giving directions, the man got out of the car and grabbed him by the shoulders, forcing him into the car. The man then drove a few miles to a rural area just north of Richmond, where he sexually assaulted Jared, then released him on the way back to Cold Spring, near County Road 158 on Highway 23 at about p.m. Jared described the car used by his abductor as dark blue in color, a late model, mid-size four-door with a blue interior and a luggage rack on the trunk. The abductor was described as a white male in his mid-30s to early 40s in age, approximately 5 foot 8 inches tall, 170 pounds, with a small gut, broad shoulders, rough dark skin, large ears, large nose, and dark hair. The man was wearing black boots, a gray vest, a brown baseball cap, and a camouflage shirt and pants similar to military-issue type clothing. He seemed to know the area around Cold Spring and Richmond quite well." End quote. We are not given a record of who was assigned the Painesville cases, but Jared's case was handled by Detectives Pierce and Leland from the Stearns County Sheriff's Office, or SCSO. A tip came in that there was a man who fit the abductor's general description, one Danny Heinrich. They had Jared look at a six-pack, a photo array of possible suspects. And Jared said that two of the photos could be the man. One was Heinrich. Armed with Jared's description of the abductor's vehicle, the detectives drove to Heinrich's place of work to have a gander at his car. The car fit Jared's description in every way except the interior color and the lack of a roof rack. I would love to say that the next thing Pierce and Leland did was to interview Heinrich, but unfortunately, if they did interview him, there is no record of it. In February, Crime Stoppers offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to the perpetrator's arrest. An ad ran in three local papers with a description of the vehicle and an artist's rendition of the abductor. In July 1989, a nine-year-old boy 
with the pseudonym Andrew reported a man attempting to grab him off the street. In St. Joseph, Andrew's mother reported the incident to the SCSO, but she said that no one would take them seriously. The attempted abduction took place in the township rather than the city of St. Joe. The St. Joseph Police Department, this covers the city, not the township, was not informed of the attempted kidnapping until after Jacob was taken. The FBI was certain that Jared and Jacob's cases were linked. But after a month and the leads drying up, both the BCA and the FBI removed a large portion of their agents from the investigation. The FBI agents who were left interviewed Danny Heinrich on December 16, 1989. Heinrich denied and claimed he couldn't remember throughout the interview. In January of 1990, the Painesville police chief reminded the task force of the cluster of attacks in Painesville. The FBI was sure that most of these could also be linked to Jacob. Chief Robert Schmigninsky also reminded them that Danny Heinrich should be looked at for Jacob and Jared's kidnapping because he was a definite person of interest in the Painesville attacks. After this reminder, investigators re-interviewed Heinrich and he offers his shoes for forensics and allows body hair samples to be taken. A few days later, Heinrich gives the okay for the removal of the rear tires from his 1982 Ford EXP. Nine days later, quote, On January 24, 1990, investigators executed a search warrant on the home owned by Howard Heinrich, located at 16021 County Road 124, east of Painesville. Danny's younger brother, Tommy, had told investigators that Danny had been living in the basement of his father's house since November 1989. Officials seized a number of items from Heinrich's home, including a black portable police scanner carrying case, lists of police scanner frequencies and user manuals, a pair of black lace-up boots, two brown caps, a Radio Shack scanner frequency book, and a pay stub from Fingerhut dated October 8, 1989. They also confiscated a brown vest, a Regency programmable handheld scanner, and a six-channel Regency scanner. Danny Heinrich was interviewed during the January 24th search. He was, again, unable to provide an alibi for the night of October 22, 1989, telling investigators that he was probably at his mother's apartment on Washburn Avenue in Painesville. He told them that he would typically spend his Sundays driving around town doing laundry or watching a movie. He denied being in St. Joseph at that night or any time that weekend. It was noted that Heinrich's bottom row of teeth had black spots in the front due to many years of chewing tobacco. Heinrich produced six photographs of children during the search. Three of the photos appeared to be of school-aged children and were marked with the name Worm. Heinrich claimed that the photos were of youths from the Twin Cities and that he had met them while he was a patient at the Wilmer Regional Treatment Center. Two of the other photos were of young males in various states of undress, and the last photo was of three fully clothed children. Officers intended to seize the photos, but Heinrich objected, stating they shouldn't be taking photographs solely on the basis that they just don't look right. The photos were left at the home, but in subsequent interviews with the investigators, Heinrich said that he had burned the photos because they looked bad and were no kind of pictures to have anyway. End quote. They let him keep the photos. On the 25th, Heinrich agrees to a lineup. Jared cannot identify his attacker from the six men in the lineup. Despite this, Daniel Heinrich is arrested for the kidnapping and sexual assault of Jared. I hate to say this, but I am surprised they arrested him. 
on the prosecution side, all they have is very circumstantial evidence. The county agreed and refused to press charges. Quote, of significant interest with regard to Heinrich's 1990 arrest was the apparent dissent between investigating agencies. The FBI moved forward with the arrest without consulting with the BCA and against advice from the Stearns County Attorney's Office. Garber notes the Stearns County District Attorney was furious that Heinrich had been arrested prematurely. End quote. Now, put another pin in what I say next. Not quite a year later, they return all the stuff they seized in the search of Heinrich's home. And that is where I will leave off for today. If you like the show, please leave a review on whatever service you use to listen. You can stop into the show's Patreon to donate to the cause or just stop in and say hi. If you don't like the show, that's an easy problem to fix. You never have to listen, ever again. Simple Minds will sing you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Relative.